I wrote a book on animal behaviour that came out uh, just in two years ago, in 2017. And what I discovered was that lots of the most exciting stories were in the area of parasites. And one of the challenges of studying animal behaviour is that most of the time we have to treat uh, behaviour and the animals making those behaviours as a black box. There's no way of getting inside the head of a lion as it chases a gazelle. There is no way that we can really know what a honeybee is thinking when it's doing the bee dance and telling the other workers where to fly, how far, how fast, and what to expect when they get there. So all those things are really obscured from us. We can describe the behaviour, we can quantify it, we can try to explain it the best way that we can. But it's actually very hard. So one of the nice things about parasites is they, they've been evolving for hundreds of millions of years ways of controlling their hosts. And if anybody knows about behaviour, it's parasites. Now, what we should have been playing as you came in, I realise now, is Fela Kuti, a uh, zombie, uh, which um, is an amazingly long track that will probably go on for another two or three hours. But since we don't have that, let's talk about parasites in fiction. It has its own page on Wikipedia, and we've thought in fiction about the possibility, the horrible possibility of being taken over by parasites. <coughs> There was a great flourishing in the 19th century. We've got Dracula. Um, more recently, we've got the Midwich Cuckoos. And, of course, everybody's favourite film, if you're brave, uh, Alien. But that's just the beginning of parasites in fiction. Uh, it's now the basis of quite a few uh, video games. And the person I'll be talking about who is working on Ant and Zombie Ants is a consultant to the gaming industry. Now, there's a good reason for being scared of parasites because probably about 50% of the world's species are parasites. And this includes every animal you can think of. I mean, perhaps not whales, but lots of other animals are parasitic. There's even parasitic fish, probably more than one, lampreys. But something to remember is that since all species um, have parasites, we then have hyperparasites. So parasites have parasites, and then those hyperparasites have parasites. And I'll stop there. But what you'll see is that there is an amazing intermeshing of these different complicated life cycles, and every animal is parasitized by something else. One of the other extraordinary things is Firstly, that anything up to half the biomass in an environment might actually be parasites. So there is a lot of hidden parasitism going on. And something that has only emerged in recent times is that the animals you're looking at, well, many of them in the wild, will be parasitised. So what David Attenborough ought to be saying at the beginning of every programme, the animals you see today may well be carrying something else. So what we don't realise, and that's true of scientists when they're researching animal behaviour, is how much of the behaviour we think is natural is actually driven by the parasites within. Now, as I mentioned, in fiction, our interest in parasites goes back a long way. But if we go back to the 19th century and Charles Darwin, shortly after the publication of The Origin in 1859, he's having trouble with clerics. And so he writes to his friend, Professor Asa Gray, I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumonidae, these are the parasitic wasps, with the express intention of their larvae feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. Now we'll see the wasp in just a moment, but we'll be coming back to the mice later because things were worse than even Darwin thought. So here's a parasitoid wasp from a wonderful video made by uh, Anand Varma, and it's stinging uh, a caterpillar, 
And what it's doing is laying 60 to 80 eggs inside the caterpillar. The caterpillar recovers from the sting and continues feeding both itself and the larvae inside. And at a certain point, they break out. You may want to look away now. This is the speeded up emergence of those wasp larvae. And amazingly, the skin of the caterpillar um, heals up. So that'd be great if you were wanting to do puncture repair on a bike. And what it's doing, what the larvae are doing now is spinning silk, the same as a silk uh, moth larva would do. The caterpillar adds a bit of silk itself. Now, in some species of wasp, a few of the wasp larvae remain inside the caterpillar and actually cause it to move. In this one, it does it apparently by itself, but it will now act as a bodyguard to the wasps that have parasitized it, to the cocoons of the wasp larvae. So why has that been selected for? Well, the answer is, of course, a hyperparasitoid. So the caterpillar is guarding its parasites, the offspring of its parasite, against the hyperparasitic wasp. And the middle leg there is the ovipositor of the hyperparasite searching out the wasp larva in that cocoon. And does it make a difference? Well, certainly in some other species, the caterpillar bodyguard is able to chase away half the parasitizing wasps. So it really does work. So there is a strong selection on the wasp to manipulate the behavior of its host. The host is really past caring, but it really is something that can be selected for. So very briefly in my opening slide, you may have noticed a wriggling maggot, and that was a wriggling morsel. And it was a German polymath who noticed this and described it. He first noticed it in an etching and thought this was strange, but then I think he also saw it in the field and described the species. It's not a snail tentacle. The pulsating tentacle, it looks more like a maggot or a caterpillar, is actually the brood sac of a fluke, a worm. And in the light, it pulses about 70 times a second. Uh, it really, 70 times a minute. It really is a very eye-catching display. And very quickly, it went into the folklore, the scientific folklore, that the fluke was also changing the behavior of the snail. The snail normally likes damp, dark habitats, but under the influence of the parasite, it climbs to the highest leaves and waves its tentacles, attracting a bird. Because the challenge for the fluke is it needs to be eaten by a bird. Now, this had been in the literature for almost 100 years. And it was only in the early 20th century that some Polish scientists actually thought, well, we'd better check. And so they went out uh, into the forest in Poland and followed the snails that were parasitized and snails that were not. And I'm pleased to say that they found that, yes, uh, the parasitized snails did seek out the sun and they were much more active, which made them more conspicuous to birds. But we still don't know whether this really changes the rate of transmission because nobody apart from some tame pet birds, has actually tested to see whether in the field it actually increases the uptake of these flukes by birds to get to their next stage. So something that would have been around in the beginning of the 19th century was also the idea that these would suddenly appear in snails by spontaneous generation. And you'll know that the big debate about whether life can come from nothing had been going on since way back before the 16th century and was only finally resolved by Pasteur's experiments where he showed that a totally sterile environment remained sterile until air and bacteria were allowed in. 
But these debates continued for a long time up until the end of the 19th century. And one of the reasons was that particularly for these parasites, it was very hard to work on the life cycle. They were very hard to decipher. The different life stages were completely different. And one of the commonest and most important economically, uh, the liver fluke, had its life cycle only worked out in 1881, even though the worm in the liver of sheep had been recognised way back in the 14th century. Making the connections between these very complex stages was really hard. And the 50 years from 1875 to 1925, have I just been hearing from Professor Cox, been described as the golden age of parasitology because it was then that so many life cycles were worked out for so many parasites. And this was happening uh, all over the world. Uh, Ross in India was working out that the human mosquito human cycle worked for malaria. He was inspired by Manson, who'd shown that elephantiasis could be found in the mosquito. And uh, he therefore inspired Ross to look for malaria. It was Manson that started the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. But there were similar scientists researching in Germany, France and Japan during this golden age when these life cycles were suddenly all shown to be occurring in this extraordinarily complex way. Because each of the stages looks nothing like the adult and they go through multiple hosts. In this case, between the ruminant, the sheep, or the cow, through into the snail, insisting on the grass, and then the vegetarian cow picks up the cysts from the grass. And we sometimes get infected. And of course, it's all about getting into the next host. And there's been something of a renaissance in parasitology. A lot of the emphasis until the 1980s was on basically the disease side and very little about the evolution. And that changed with people like Janice Moore, uh, Marlene Zook, and various other people who started to focus on the behavior of parasites and their hosts. And they were also aided by new ways of looking at the epidemiology by people like Anderson and May, who worked out new ways of modeling those infectious stages. So it's all about getting into the next host and working on those epidemiological principles. And the thing that can happen is that parasites really can manipulate the behavior of their hosts. And all sorts of words have been used. Puppet masters, evolutionary neuroscientists, they've been at it a long time, as I said. Hundreds of millions of years of evolution to control the behavior and physiology of their hosts. But there are lots of questions because as with that snail and liver fluke, sorry, the snail and the fluke, there is the question as to whether it really does change transmission. And always there is the question of how does it work? What are the detailed mechanisms of how the parasite is gaining control? So to go to another famous example that uh, appeared in the David Attenborough uh, films from the early series, um, this is another fluke. It's added another life stage. So as well as the cow and the snail, it has an ant. And the ant is transfixed by snail slime balls. And it thinks they're like candy. But whilst it's eating them, it picks up the infectious stage, the cercaria. Inside the ant, some of the cercaria work their way to rest on the brain of the ant and they cause a very strange behavior. During the day, it behaves as normal, working diligently for the nest. But each evening, it leaves the colony, climbs up a grass stem and bites, it firmly bites an ant stem and waits there. Now, how do you get from an ant into a vegetarian cow? Well, you basically put yourself on the food. And so the ant gripping the grass blade gets eaten inadvertently by the cow and it completes the cycle. If 
it's not eaten, then it tries again. So after another day's hard work, it goes back to the colony, comes out and climbs up a grass stem. So there's a very precise control of the behaviour of the ant, and it's a behaviour that we'll come back to later. So what if your problem is going from an ant to a fruit-eating bird? Well, the obvious thing is to change your ant, if you're the parasite, into a berry. So on the left, we have the uninfected turtle ant. Uh, this is an ant in central South America. And normally, it lives in the understory, in the, the humid uh, ground-level plant vegetation. If it's infected by the nematode, its behaviour changes. It now walks to the top of the canopy and starts walking in the sunny areas on the tops of the leaves. Its abdomen has turned cherry red and it waves it about. Uh, ants don't normally do that. And there are also changes to its structure. So now the berry is very easy to detach. It's 14 times easier to detach. And that means that a bird that's attracted doesn't have to fight the spines that defend the ant. Well, what if you're a parasite in an insect that lives on land, but you need to get into water? Well, that's evolved a number of times and this is a slide from David Hughes. Uh, the cricket on the left has dived suicidally into water, and as soon as it hits the water, hairworms come out of the back of the, the anus of the cricket. And if you look online, and you can do this for all the examples I'm giving, and there is really gruesome film if it comes through your adult filter. It really is just horrible. I'm showing you stills for that reason. <laughs> the hairworm needs to be in water for it to reproduce. And some scientists spent a wonderful summer uh, lying by swimming pools in the south of France, I think, uh, waiting for crickets to hop into the pool uh, when they weren't swimming themselves. And it made a very nice paper. So that's happened with the crickets and the hairworms, but convergently it also happens with the nematodes and ants, which similarly need to get into water. But what's fascinating about this example, these examples, is convergently we have control of the behaviour of the host but without hands because the parasite is in the main body cavity. So here's another example. These are the zombie ants and the parasite is a fungus uh, with a name uh, too long for me to say. The fungus infests, infects a very particular species. So for each fungus, and there's a broad uh, genus and species, but there are lots of strains. Each of the strains is specific for one particular ant species. It's found worldwide. Uh, it's been studied in Thailand, but also uh, in Brazil. It was noted um, in Southeast Asia by Alfred Russell Wallace, who, as you know, uh, co-proposed uh, the way that evolution might work uh, the same year uh, as Darwin, which prompted Darwin to publish The Origin. He noticed these ants that were covered with fungus. Uh, none of those specimens survive, but he certainly made note in his records. Well, we know a lot more about the behaviour of these zombie ants. And one of the people who's been studying this is David Hughes, an Irish scientist now in the US at Penn State. And David has written, while the manipulated individual may look like an ant, it represents a fungal genome expressing fungal behavior through the body of an ant. It's almost like a physical ventriloquism, not changing language, but changing movement. And this has been called the extended phenotype, an idea that was proposed by Richard Dawkins in his book of the same name in 1982. So what happens when an ant is infected? So the fungal spore lands on the cuticle, enzymes bore a hole through the cuticle of the ant, 
And then once inside, the hyphae, the fungal filaments expand and end up taking up about half the weight of the ant. It's basically a walking fungus, but it's completely undetected. So it's just like your worst horror movie. It is walking among the other ants undetected. And the reason the fungus can't break out inside the nest is the ants are very good at removing ants that are behaving strangely. And they end up thrown onto the rubbish, te- uh, rubbish, rubbish heap, the tip. So the fungus must keep the ant behaving well until about three weeks later after infection, in the late morning, it starts to change the behavior of the ant. So this ant is one that lives in the canopy and in the late morning, the fungus starts to change the behavior of the ants, starting them on a random walk and they start to stagger just like the horror film mummies and they have repeated convulsions And what that means is they tumble down from the canopy to the ground. They then pick themselves up and get about a foot off the ground in the understory. They find a leaf and go to the underside of the leaf. And then almost at the strike of solar noon, they face northwest. They bite the midrib of the leaf in a death grip. And this is some of David Hughes' data from Thailand. Uh, What you can see uh, with time uh, going across the x-axis, each of the red dots against the time is a single ant that they followed that bites. And they're basically very close to solar noon. And that's true in Thailand and equivalently solar noon in Brazil. And this is what it looks like. This is the ant having made the death grip and it's still twitching. It's completely unresponsive. If you touch it, it doesn't respond. In a moment, it'll switch to time-lapse. And there is the fungus starting to burst out of the ant. And now the mushroom is coming out of the head of the ant. And when it reaches its full extent, it will form the fruiting body that will explode and that will drop the spores onto the ants below. Now the ants spend most of their time in the canopy, but they spend quite a bit of time on the ground and these corpses are over those trails. Now, why is there the death grip? Why has the ant come down to that level? Why has the fungus made it do it? Well, you're probably ahead of me because at that level in the forest, it's humid, and the fungus needs that for proper growth and for the spores to germinate on the ants it's going to land on. By going on the underside of the leaf, it's actually in perfect prime position to drop the spores below. And a cartoonist for David drew this cartoon of the ant walking along, It's uh, in a snowstorm and then it looks up and sees its compatriots um, basically uh, with skulls uh, dropping more spores and it's a goner. Now the early work uh, from the Hughes group suggested that the fungus was affecting the brain directly. But actually it turned out to be much stranger because the fungus fills the body And as you make sections of the ant's muscles, including in the jaw muscles, basically what you find are the fungal hyphae are everywhere. They're yellow in this diagram. They're going along the muscle fibers. And basically there is almost a parallel communication system running within the ant. But the brain itself is not touched. So we are left still with the mystery of how the fungus is affecting the behavior in such a precise way at that moment of solar noon, in the direction, at the right height, and all those things. And the approach that the Hughes Lab and others are taking is to look at 
the new science of metabolomics, where you can look at all the molecules that are being produced in an infected ant and compare it with the brain of a non-infected ant and look for the molecules that have changed. So metabolomics, proteomics, all the omics are now being brought in to see if we can work out what the changes are. But what we do know is that this parasitization has been going on a very long time. And in a lovely study, David Hughes and colleagues in Germany were looking through the drawers of fossil leaves, and this is what they found. So in the top left, along the midribs of leaves 48 million years ago, from a time when that part of Germany was subtropical rainforest, you find all the bite marks. And if you blow those up, they're like this, and they are indistinguishable from the modern ones here and here. So basically, this is a behavior that you can take back 50 million years, and there are other parasite examples where unusually we have behavior fossilized. So we know they've been doing it a very long time. Now you've probably predicted this, but the fungal parasite doesn't have it all its own way, because of course there is a hyperparasite. So this is another fungus uh, that grows over the main fungus that we've been describing, the zombie fungus, and basically takes over and prevents the zombie fungus reproducing, instead reproducing itself. So what we have are lots of examples of mind control by parasites, where you really can say, no hands. There is the invisible hand, I guess like in economics, of the host's behaviour. But how that is happening, we simply don't know. And this was actually a reminder about many of the interesting things about behaviour that I came across when I was drawing together the ideas for producing the Animal Behaviour book. And there was a very good reminder that behaviour is not just nerves. It's nerves that we think about in terms of immediate behaviour. And nerves are the orange line there in the centre. So that's the brain telling the leg to move, as it were. But actually all sorts of things are influencing the brain. So we have day length, solar noon for that case, matter. Uh, we have social interactions with other members of the same species. And then these in a, in a mammal are all being integrated by with the hypothalamus, which is then sending messages to the pituitary gland, which in turn is sending hormones to the gonads. And there is an endless set of feedback loops. It's a very complicated system. And what the hormones are doing is all over the body, in the correct cells that are expressing the right receptors, turning genes on and off, working with the DNA, switching genes on and off. It's a very complicated process. But if a parasite is able to gain access to your blood or your hemolymph, if you're an insect, then it has access to those hormonal controls. And some of the things that we think of as sickness, the immune system, the cytokines, may actually be the diseased organism or the parasite interacting and influencing those in ways that actually affect the way we feel and our behaviour. So those changes really can be quite profound. So I want to switch now to an example of how hormones can change the appearance and behaviour very quickly, all through a social change. So this is a, a cichlid fish in an African lake. Uh, the subordinate on the left doesn't have the eye bar, doesn't show the territorial behaviour, is very um, dimly coloured, very nondescript. Whereas the dominant male on the right is territorial and is fertilising females that come to lay eggs in his nest. If the subordinate becomes the dominant and takes the dominant's place, within about half an hour, changes start to happen. And it's a cascade. So, basically, what's happening is that the hypothalamus uh, detects the change, signals come to it, it sends signals to the pituitary, 
messages then go to the testers, the colour changes, the behaviour changes, all incredibly rapidly. And this is an example of the kinds of things that can happen. And if a parasite was able to get control of some of those systems, you can see easily how it would get control. And of course, parasites can manipulate all of these hormonal circuits. Well, what about fearless mice and rats? The story goes back to a farm outside Oxford. Uh, Manuel Burdoy still works in Oxford. Joanne Webster uh, is now a professor at Imperial. And David MacDonald, uh, running with foxes, continues to do amazing work on mammals around the world. What they did in a semi-field experiment was look at the behaviour of rats at night on arenas, on sandy arenas, either uh, containing the smell of cats or containing the smell of vegetarian rabbits. And what they were looking for was something which had been known for a long time. It's this parasite uh, related distantly to malaria that infects rodents, so mice and rats. And what they found was really strange. They'd already shown earlier that behaviour of rats that were infected with this parasite was different. But what they found was that as you looked through the night at the different cumulative night sorties when the rat left its nest box, that if the rat was infested, infected with the parasite, it tended to go on the cat odour side, whereas the non-infected rats stayed safely and correctly, as it were, for a rat on the rabbit side. So this paper has been cited more than 500 times. It's a classic. And the behaviour really is quite marked. Uh, it can lead to fatal attraction. So this is a photograph taken by uh, Wendy Ingram, who's done some really nice experiments on the mouse model of toxoplasmosis. And she was able to show that even when you clear the parasite from the mouse, it still shows the fear response. Or rather, yes, if you remove the parasite, it continues to not be frightened. Um, so it still uh, will go up to a, a cat and uh, play friends. So Tom and Jerry has nothing on what uh, toxoplasmosis can do. It's quite a complex life cycle. Um, it's a parasite, it's a protozoan. It has to live inside cells, uh, mostly inside nerve cells, inside neurons. Uh, it reproduces sexually in the cat. Uh, and it has intermediate hosts, either rodents or birds. And in those intermediate hosts, it forms uh, cysts in the tissue, and then that muscle is eaten, or the brain is eaten, and the cat then completes the cycle. So it removes the fear response, and it appears to be fairly specific. So other predators remain fear-causing. It's just cat urine of various kinds. And there was even a suggestion that the bigger the cat, so the wild cats um, would be even more scary than the domesticated cat. There is a twist um, that it's sexually transmitted uh, in rats, and in a further twist, the infested infected rats are more attractive to females, perhaps because they produce uh, more pheromones, more smell. And what we're looking for in these intermediary hosts are the cysts in the brain. So what are the mechanisms? How does it get its effects? And Vias, who's one of the key people working on this, has looked and proposed three main mechanisms that are being researched at the moment. So one early idea was that the cysts were going in particular parts of the rodent's brain, those associated with fear, and knocking those out, which is why there was no response to the cat odour. It now turns out that statistically there is likely to be in any part of the brain. The next was that it was interfering with dopamine signalling, uh, that neurotransmitter involved in humans in Parkinson's disease. And there were early signs that the cysts were perhaps producing more dopamine. But when you dose the rats with more L-dopa, you don't get the effect you expect. So there are lots of problems with that. 
And a third idea is that it's having all sorts of hormonal effects and that these are indirectly affecting uh, the epigenetics uh, in the brain. So at the moment, um, the jury is still out. It's a very active area of research and we still don't know how this parasite is causing the effects in its hosts. But of course, the thing that we're really uh, worried about and interested by is this. Because although we're a dead-end host, it's possible for us to become infected. And depending on the country and population, uh, which depends uh, on exposure and how well uh, cooked our food is, between 50 and 90% of adults have a latent, uh, benign, apparently, uh, infection uh, with toxoplasma. Uh, it gets to us um, through cat litter because the cat in its faeces is producing millions of these infective stages. And so that's why the advice uh, to pregnant mothers is not to enter uh, cat litter trays, if, if everyone needed an excuse. Um, and that's partly because the uh, developing baby is one of the stages that is susceptible um, to uh, the parasite, um, as is um, anybody who's immunocompromised. Uh, so if you have HIV, then that's again uh, something else you need to watch for. It can uh, come from uh, blood transfusions and uh, transplants. It can also come through food, um, so if you eat uh, infected animals. So the real question is, does it have any effect on human behaviour? And if you uh, do a search on news, you'll find lots of headlines. Um, so this was one study, probably one of the better ones, uh, which is looking, a prospective study, looking at military drivers and the number of accidents they have and looking at whether or not uh, they showed uh, an immune response indicating they'd been exposed to the parasite. Uh, and also there's an effect of whether or not they are uh, rhesus positive or negative. And it suggested that those drivers who were infected by the parasite were about two and a half times more likely to have an accident. But you'd be pleased to hear that um, even military drivers don't have accidents that often. So it's a, an increase on a small number. Uh, there are suggestions that perhaps it's associated with schizophrenia and lots of other mental illnesses. But there really is no relationship uh, epidemiologically. Uh, schizophrenia, which as you will know, is a very difficult and controversial diagnosis. There may be many different forms of disease that we call schizophrenia. It's about 1% of every human population. Yet, as I've mentioned, the infection rate with toxoplasma varies from 15 to 90. And there is no easy association between prevalent local rates of infection and the rates of schizophrenia. There were sort of more bizarre papers. This is one, uh, 2018, that came from a business school. And they used a saliva test for presence of contact with the parasite, again, looking for antibodies. And they suggested that those taking these business courses who had been exposed to the parasite uh, were two and a half times more likely to have started their own company. Um, but your mileage may vary, and um, some commentaries suggested that this was fairly unlikely as a cause. It may even be correlational. And that's, of course, the important thing, that we simply don't know the chicken or the egg. So the verdict is simply not proven. Um, the effects are small, and most of the studies are small. But there is still a question even about whether Toxo actually affects its rodent hosts in ways that affect transmission. And Worth and colleagues in Australia have written some fairly critical reviews, basically wondering about the inconsistencies in experimental results. So in some experiments, it's an effect on the rodent anxiety. Sometimes the effect is very specifically for feline odours. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it can be banished by one treatment or another. And 
Crucially, there is no field evidence that shows that infected animals are more likely to be eaten in the wild. So it's one thing to show behaviour that suggests that it's true, but we're back to the waving tentacle in that snail with the fluke. And there is also, they point out, no evidence that that sexual stage in the cat is crucial for reproductive success of the parasite, because there is a lot of vertical transmission between life stages, uh, as I was mentioning with the rat, from uh, the male to the female and then on to the offspring. So there are all sorts of ways that parasites might be controlling their hosts. Uh, it could be through some psychoimmunological effect, uh, through things like cytokines. It might be that the parasites are using drugs. And we'll come to an example in just a moment where we know that is the case. And it could be all sorts of complicated effects, um, directly and indirectly, on the genes that are switched on and switched off. And it could be even by introducing completely new genes. There's a wonderful wasp that, having parasitized a ladybird, then leaves the ladybird, the ladybird remains living, the ladybird doesn't walk away, but it grips the wasp cocoon and will now defend it. So why does the ladybird keep on behaving that way? And it turns out that it's a virus carried by the wasp that is left in the ladybird that continues to influence the ladybird behaviour. So in that case, you could argue that the wasp is just the virus's way of making more virus, if you're going to follow Richard Dawkins' extended phenotype. And so it's the viral genes, and it's now been tied down to one particular gene that is affecting the ladybird behaviour. So all sorts of things could be going on, and in a similar way a virus in another case has been shown to send caterpillars up to the top of trees, and if you make a mutant virus without that particular gene, the caterpillars don't show that behaviour. Now it still leaves how the virus gene is doing it, but it shows that those gene products can have an effect. So, what about neural circuits? So we know that parasitoid insects can take over the nervous system. There are some examples where the control is direct. And this brings us to the wasp that always stings twice. It's an extraordinary story that all started because a French neuroscientist, now in Israel, was looking for something to do. And he had a visitor from Germany who kept this particular wasp uh, in his lab back in Germany. And it was the perfect thing for Fred Liebersatz's next research. He'd been researching cockroach locomotion. Here was a, a wasp that knew how to change how cockroaches walked. So this is the story. And what we see in this photograph is the wasp making the second sting. This is the head sting. And if you've ever tried to catch a cockroach live, these are the big, fast American cockroaches that are about three inches long, and they run fast. The wasp is able to do it and stings it. So, what's the life cycle? So, basically, um, it makes a first sting to the chest of the cockroach. That's the thoracic sting. It then makes, a few seconds later, the head sting. While the cockroach is grooming, the wasp goes off and looks for a burrow, digs one if necessary. It comes back to the cockroach, bites half the cockroach's antenna off at about midway, and then has a refreshing drink from the blood of the cockroach, from the haemolymph of the cockroach. When it's satisfied, it then grabs the antenna of the cockroach and leads it, a bit like a self-propelled lawnmower, or a dog on a lead to the burrow. Having put it in the burrow, it lays a single egg marked by the green arrow. It blocks the burrow up, and then inside the burrow, the larva hatches, uh, 
goes into the cockroach and 40 days later it emerges. So what's going on with those two stings? So the first sting in the chest basically sends uh, all the chloride channels uh, haywire and it prevents the first pair of legs from walking. It basically knocks it out for about five minutes. The second injection uh, causes the cockroach to groom. It basically floods the brain with dopamine and the cockroach's response is to intensively groom on the spot and that's when the wasp is going off to find its burrow. The cockroach won't move. There is then a lethargic period for about five days. If it didn't have a wasp egg on it, in fact, the cockroach would wake up and walk away unharmed. So it's a reversible venom. It's a reversible drug. So we have two stages, two stings, and they're put very precisely. The first sting knocks out the walking rhythm generators. The second sting to the two parts of the brain, the brain that we would recognize and the subesophageal ganglion, the other part of the brain, that's where the second sting is going and those are knocking out the control centers. And this is where I was telling you that sometimes parasites can tell you something new about the way behavior is organized in a way that's very hard to study otherwise. What we see here is something that's very common across animals, across the animal kingdom. It's something that is very highly conserved from the arthropods right the way through to mammals. And it's this idea of central pattern generation. This was discovered, um, I think, way back in the 1950s, first in the locust. And if you've ever wondered how a locust flies, each wing beat is not the locust thinking, beat my wing, beat my wing, up, down. Up. It's a central pattern generator. And the person who discovered this found that if you took those nerve cells out of the nerve cord, the nerve cells will continue pulsing at the same rate as they did in the locust. So they were creating a central pattern. Walking, or rather deciding to start walking, is a different part of the brain. So deciding to walk for the cockroach, and there are some lovely papers about free will in cockroaches, which you can find if you search for that. So does the cockroach decide to walk at this moment? That's a very different centre. So once the signal comes from the brain to the walking rhythm generators, it will walk. Until that signal comes, it won't walk. And so some of the delay between the wasp walking its um, living zombie cockroach to the burrow is it needs the first injection to wear off so that the poor cockroach can now walk. It's got back the use of the front pair legs. What you'll remember, of course, is that in Parkinson's, you still have the ability to walk, but what doesn't happen is the impulse to walk. That's what's very hard. So that's something we'll come back to in a moment. Now, if you've ever had root canal treatment at the dentist, um, you may wince at the next slide. Because what we have here is the injection uh, that the wasp is making. This is the second head injection, and in red is the stinger going towards the brain, and it's going into the brain. And this is a view of the brain and the different angles at which wasps will be coming in. So it doesn't know exactly where the brain is given a given starting point and a wriggling cockroach, which is not making life easy. So what they did next was have radioactive wasps. So you could see the radioactive venom uh, in dark here. They then looked at the tip of the sting and could see arrowed 
all these sensory hairs and that Liebesat reckoned, reasoned, that these sensory hairs might have something to do with what was going on. So this is the time the wasp stings. This is the normal, the control. And basically the head sting is quick, less than a second, very fast. And the thoracic sting, the first sting, is in less than half a second. If you take the brain away, which is kind of cruel to the wasp, it spends 10 seconds looking for the brain it knows must be there. Uh, it's searching for it. Uh, that doesn't affect the thoracic sting, which of course isn't towards the brain. If you put a soft jelly where the brain is, again, it can't find, the wasp can't find a brain. But if you give it a tough gel that's more brain consistency, then it's back to normal. And indeed, it injects that uh, artificial hard agar brain. So it looks as though it's feeling around blind with its sensors at the end of its sting and uh, releasing the venom at the right moment. So is a cockroach that is just quiet the same as a cockroach that's been stung? Uh, they look the same, um, but if you introduce a paintbrush, uh, the one that hasn't been stung actually shows the normal response. It runs. So it really has affected the response from the cockroach. And the thing that, of course, is very exciting now is the possibility of drug leads. The problem is it's very, very complex. There are more than 250 proteins there, some of which are neuroactive, some of the precursors, some create that perfect storm when they're injected into the brain. But the cockroach doesn't get everything its own way. And a paper that came out last year, filmed in very high speed, shows the cockroach sometimes wins. I can't say that no wasp was hurt during the filming of this, but it's nice to see the underdog actually winning on occasion. It swings its leg back, each frame is a thousandth of a second, and then whap, it survives. And the cockroach is safe about 50% of the times, but the wasp will come back. So what I've tried to argue is that parasites really can manipulate the behaviour of their hosts. There are still so many questions. We're just at the beginning of answering the questions about mechanism. And the second paper at the bottom there is all about that missing link. We know the parasites can do it, but there is so much that we need to discover. So this will be on the online version. Uh, there are lots of uh, ways to read about it. There's lots of very good science journalism because it makes incredible stories. Uh, I do hope you'll follow up and thank you for listening.